Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 12, Schrodinger's Cat. I'm joined in the studio by, by Zach Weaver. <laughs> Hi, guys. And Mike Mussing. What's up? And uh, we've got some things to talk about it. Uh, believe it or not, I did talk a little bit about the case this week, uh, besides my little analogy that seemed to get everyone's attention. So we're going to get into your questions right after a break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18-plus terms apply. All right, Bob, first, before we get into the questions, I want to read a comment from listener Jim. He says, I'm drooling at the thought of this episode. Can you explain what he's talking about? <laughs> I sure can, Mike. Uh, what Jim is referring to was my, my mistake that I made in uh, the analogy. Now, I'm probably getting that. Was it, was it a metaphor? Was it an analogy? Was it a simile? Definitely not a simile. We need a thesaurus in here. Uh, we need to define synonym too, because that's on a list somewhere. Uh, so yes, yes. Um, thanks. To, I was made aware by 472 posts across all forms of social media, letting me know that, uh, I made an error <laughs> in the episode when referring to the conditioning of Jennifer to get her coerced into a false confession as uh, the Schrodinger's cat experiment. But I'm going to clap back at you guys because the most common comment that I got, along with what Jim is saying here, is it wasn't Schrodinger's cat. You meant to say Pavlov's dog. But ha, you're wrong too because I didn't mean to say Pavlov's dog because Pavlov's dog is also incorrect. So this is really quickly. Um, I'm gl- it, it, this is fun. But I wanted, I just want to let you guys know what happened here. I wrote Pavlov dog in Pavlov's dog into my script, 
in a game time audible as I was recording, it occurred to me it's not Pavlov's dog because Pavlov's dog wasn't wasn't trained. He wasn't trained to change his behavior based on stimuli. It just had a a, a physiological uh, uh, occurrence of drooling based on what he picked up on by what the people around him were doing when they were feeding him. So there's kind of it's kind of there, but not really. Really, I think what I was looking for was Skinner's rat is 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 a better synonym. <laughs> Analogy, simile, metaphor. Yeah, it's an experiment based on positive reinforcement. <laughs> right, is what I was looking for. But but the funny part is, and I just wanted to share this, I, I said on social media, is the how I landed on Schrodinger's cat uh, was the worst, stupidest possible way ever. In the moment, I thought, no, it's not Pavlov's dog. And then I thought back to an episode of The Big Bang Theory where Sheldon is trying to train Penny to behave properly by giving her treats. And I thought that's that's what I'm looking for. That and then I was like, what is that experiment he's always talking about? And then it popped in my head, Schrodinger's cat. And then people will think that I am so smart because I know what Schrodinger's cat is, uh, which has absolutely nothing to do with any <laughs> any of this. Uh Schrodinger's cat was a cat in a box with with some poison and and it, the, how how would you describe the, the, that if you don't look in the box, the cat could be both a dead and dead and alive at the same time? Could be viewed as both dead and alive at the same time, right? Um, unlike the drooling Pavlov's dog. So uh, that's my bad. And so I just want to get that right out front. Explain that because uh, it seemed like from social media that very few people were aware of any of the actual case materials that occurred in the other 99% of the episode because I screwed up so bad that it threw this big flag into it. And uh, I'm assuming, Zach, the notes that you have in front of you are regarding the case. Uh, So I'll have you go ahead and go through those and then we'll get into the questions. So the first note I made about the episode, and you made it very clear in this, that Eva had to be in clear view of the apartment if she was standing down there. Right. Do we, do we really feel that way? Because from the, the photos I've seen, it, I think that there's a chance she could have been standing off to the side by the stairs and still seen the door open and still seen the patio or the screen door on the ground without seeing directly into the apartment. I've seen that somebody on social media had posted that, oh, well, she could have. She could have been able to tell that the door was open. By just starting to walk by not getting fully in front of the patio. Mm hmm. Because she could see the door frame from that pers- from that point. Is that what you're you're talking about? Well, from some of the photos I've seen, it, it looks like you could still be if you get to the bottom of the stairs, just past the storage door. Right. You can see the patio without being in direct view through into the apartment. You can see the patio when I was doing the going through the video as he walked by there. It seemed like like the angle that you'd have to get to before you can actually see the doorway. You have to be in front of it. Okay. But in any case, if if what we're talking about is that from just a couple steps off the stairs, she could see the doorway mm-hmm. and know it's open, I think my point's still valid. Because my point is, if she's looking in at an open doorway, then there's nothing obstructing her from seeing what's behind the doorway, which, according to Jennifer's confession, is three people in there murdering Catalina. And then also, we just have to jump on this as we get into speculation, just behaviorally speaking. If she's down there screaming and genuinely concerned that something's wrong, do we believe that when she comes down and sees the doors open, that she doesn't step up to the patio to look and look 
Yeah, that makes sense. To holler in that she just like from that angle, like, oh, I can see it's open and then leaves. There's no way. And by the way, as I've said many times, I don't think any of that even happened. My point is the detective Allen should have known that that should have been a giant red flag to him when you've got one witness saying the one that you believe is saying I got down, looked at him and I have to go back at her her statement and look because she might have even said in one of them that she stepped over to the front of the patio. Uh, don't quote me on that until we look it up. But that, but for some reason, I feel like I re- as I'm sitting here now, I remember her even saying that she stepped over there. But in any case, he's got one witness saying that while the murder's occurring, I could see that the door was open, that the door was fully open, she said. So she she had real clear view of it and that she didn't see the three people inside or even one person inside at that time. Like that should have been a red flag to him. That should have been just just as much, if not more, of a red flag than the things that triggered him with Jennifer's statements. Makes sense. So you brought up Detective Allen. That's another thing. In one of the statements that Detective Allen just kind of brushed off is Jennifer's statement about that there was a conversation between Eva and and a gentleman I think was named Frank. Yeah. Do we know at any point when that conversation had happened? Did it happen that night? Did it happen that morning? And who the hell is Frank? Well, we don't know who Frank is because, again, Detective Allen took Eva's statement as the truth standard. And so he literally tells, as I said, it's complete gaslighting, tells Jennifer that I know your statement's not true because Jennifer says it or because Eva says it's not true. But he never looked for Frank. He just told her, no, that's 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 a lie. I know that's not true. And so they just moved past it. But I think there's something there's something there. Maybe not all of it. I don't I don't know. But I mean, it's we're looking at and I know it's easy to it, it's to to look at the analysis of these statements and be like, well, you're cherry picking what you believe and what you don't. Well, what I'm looking at is where does the information come from? So like, where does the information about the butcher knife come from? Seems pretty clear that came from Detective Allen. Uh, the thought that there's blood on the plastic at the silverware drawer. That seems you can source that back to the detectives, right? You can you can you can explain it, where those these things come from. And when she comes up with the names and the details through the confession, she's a, it's a two hour question and answer that was written out as though it was a flowing narrative. So you can see where that stuff comes from. And in the case where Jennifer says that she talks to this guy named Frank and they want to rough her up, that didn't come from the detective. And we know that because the detectives didn't want that narrative. You know, D- Detective Allen fought against that. So he didn't put that information in her head that that maybe uh, it was Eva who did this and rubber up. So in looking at that, so that came from Jennifer. Did she make it up on a whole cloth? Maybe. But when we look at if he had been looking at the case objectively, we go back to victimology. What's her only risk factor that we're aware of? Is the complaint she's making about Eva, right? Does the only victimology. I think that the crime scene indicates uh, and I guess it's a good time to, guys to tell you, I'm pretty excited about this, but as of right now, this moment we're recording this, Jim Clemente has the case file, um, the parts of the case file that without wit- any suspects, because he doesn't want to know who the suspects are, but he is currently evaluating the crime scene photos, the crime scene video, uh, and the evidence collected and working on building a profile. And hopefully by next week, uh, we'll get that profile from him. So we'll see. My amateur profile of this case is that this was a targeted attack. It wasn't a robbery gone wrong. It was a targeted attack on on Catalina. So when you take that and you take victimology and then you hear, well, 
the person who the manager pointed out to you has a beef with Catalina, now you have a witness saying that that person said that she was going to go rough her up that seems to fit with that evidence. I think that's something that should have garnered more attention from Detective Allen. He should have looked in. He should have tried to find out who Frank is. He should have, instead of just dismissing it, you know, right off the rails and telling her it doesn't make sense. And that's when she gets frustrated, too. When you when you read through his testimony, it's after that that she says, I need to wash my face, go to the bathroom, and then I'll tell you the truth. In my mind, what I'm picturing is Jennifer just like, I don't what we see in all these false confessions. Like, I need I'm I need to tell him what he wants to hear so that. This can be over for me. I don't know what he wants to hear. Perhaps, possibly, she thought, I just told him the truth, and he won't accept that. So I need to think of something. I need a break, and I need to think of something. But, but yeah, I, I think that it should have been looked into more. I would love to know who Frank is. Uh, and what was the other part of your question? Uh, it was, when do we think that conversation happened? Oh, okay. I have to go, we don't have a statement that we only have Alan's report. Well, because in Alan's statement, he kind of says, we know that didn't happen because there's other witnesses. But if that's if that conversation happened the night before or a day before, then Katie and Youngster aren't the present for that anyways. Well, and that doesn't make sense anyway. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As far as we have other witnesses saying it didn't happen. The only, uh, the only thing I could take from that is that we have Katie and Youngster saying that Eva was out there screaming while the attack was happening. So we know that that's not true, that it couldn't have been you and it couldn't have been even Frank inside because Katie and Youngster say that she was outside. In my mind, I feel like it was it was a conversation that happened the night before. I don't remember if that's what he wrote, uh, that that's when she actually said it. But, yeah, my the the way I remember it, it was when she said that part, the way he documented it was that the night before they talked about how she was going to rough up Catalina with her friend Frank. And also kind of getting back to what I was saying about that, like the things that I'm not saying make it true, but the make that should have triggered more investigation into that theory is that it adds up. Like, how does even how does Jennifer know that the neighbor's been complaining? How do Katie and Youngster, who just met Eva, know that the neighbor's been complaining on her? The only explanation is that they were talking about it, you know, that night or that morning after. You know, so. So point being, it was a topic of conversation. There's no getting around it. At some point, it was a topic of conversation with that group that there was that she had her neighbor complaining about her. And and then we look at Jennifer's statement that we had a conversation about that. And she said they're going to rough her up. It's it's enough. Again, I'm not saying it's true, but there's enough there that should have gotten some investigation. We should know who Frank is and we should know who Tommy is. It definitely needed some attention paid to it. Mm hmm. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
All right, this question comes from Bree. Do we know if this apartment complex was some type of government-subsidized housing? I ask because if it was, complaints can jeopardize one's ability to remain in an apartment and access housing in the future. Also, you said last week that the butcher knife was missing, but the drawer was being held open by a butcher knife. Then you moved on. What's up with that? Uh, The first part, I don't know if it was government subsidized, but that's something that is worth looking into. Either way, whether it is, you know, we have a hypothesis out there that it's possibly that Eva was maybe running her side business out of that apartment. So the complaints could jeopardize that which could create a risk factor, or then it could be this. Maybe it's just the fact that she couldn't get any other government-subsidized housing uh, or any, you know, know, yeah, I guess we would be talking about Eva because that's who the complaints were against. That's a possibility, too. I I doubt the latter because she seemed like she had another place to stay. She had a boyfriend across the other side of town, and then she moved right in with him right after this. About the knife, I'm glad they pointed that out because there wasn't much talk about it on social media this weekend, but I think it's important. So this is the point. In Juan Mendiola's testimony, he says that Detective Allen brought him in, opened a door, and showed him, he says door, and showed him a set of knives and asked if if anything was missing. He said, yes, the large butcher knife is missing. Uh, Detective Allen's, obviously, you can see the way all, everything's being twisted to try to show that a large butcher knife is missing from a set. But then when I look at the drawer, when Alan says that that the drawer was being held open by a knife, and I look at the drawer, and I'm like, holy shit, it's the large butcher knife. That, like, like when you look at the photo, I miss, it's hard to see. You really got to look for it. You got to look at the close-up view, um, because there's there's an apron strap that's, that's hanging down off the counter over the edge of the drawer, and the knife in the far away picture is right in front of that. And the way the reflection's hitting it, it's, it doesn't look like a knife. But then it zoomed in in another picture, and you can see actually see the handle under the plastic, and you can see the the blade. It's a big, large butcher knife. And so my my point was that that people should be noticing this, just just like Breed did. Is this is a like it's just more nonsense. So the, so the the whole theory of the case is that they took the only knife missing is the large butcher knife when there's a picture of the fucking large butcher knife right there. It wasn't missing. You can see it. It's in the it's in the drawer the whole time. Well, I don't think you can put a lot of weight into his statement about the butcher knife being missing. I mean, I understand what the detective is trying. He's trying to lead him to find this, to say this butcher knife is it, but you can't put a lot of weight into it. I mean, it's it's really easy. If we went and you showed me a picture of your knife set in the house and the butcher knife was missing and you said, is everything there? Do you see anything? I could easily say the butcher knife is missing. Usually, right. usually it's there. If it's a set, it's there. You know right. what I mean? Like there's usually a, a knife block. There's yeah. a slot for it. You can easily tell any knife is missing. Yeah. So I, I just think by deductive reasoning, it would be easy for him to show him a picture and say, is there anything yeah. missing out of well, this? Well, he was in the apartment. It wasn't a picture. But yeah, I agree with you 100% about your point. And then I wondered like when he opened the door, because I'm picture what you just said, is it, does she have a block? Mm-hmm. in a cabinet somewhere where all the knives are in. And yeah, the, the the biggest slot is empty. It's missing. But it but he didn't look around the whole apartment. Like I said, they could have been sitting in the in the uh in, in the drying rack. See, I was under the impression that he showed him photos. I wasn't under the impression that he No, he took him he said he took him into the apartment and he said and he showed me an open his exact words where he showed me an open door and asked me if I was familiar with the knife set and I was. It was a cheap set that she had bought. 
And then is there anything missing? Yes, the large butcher knife was missing. Well, so if it's a block in a cabinet somewhere, that cuts against their theory because the whole theory is that it came out of that drawer. And if it's if it was from the drawer itself, well, there wasn't a large butcher knife missing. The large butcher knife was sitting right there the whole time. And when you look at those pictures, I don't see where a knife set can fit. Did you look at the pictures at all? I've, I've looked at them a little bit, yeah. Yeah, there's no, like, there's a little bit of space on the left side of that drawer that's covered by the plastic. But in different angles, you can see in there, there's certainly, you know, what's a knife set? Usually comes with like six steak knives, a paring knife, a carving knife, a, a longer thin knife, and a butcher knife. Yeah, I would say, I mean, obviously we're just, it's all anecdotal. We don't really know, but there's there's room for a couple knives to be there. But to say a set, I mean, I feel like if you're yeah. implying a set, you're implying a whole set, which is right. why I come up with the, the knife block. Because right. if there were just knives there, why would you say it's a set? Yeah, exactly. And, and and maybe I'm sure they exist, but any cheap knife sets, expensive, any any set of knives I've ever bought has always come to come in some kind of a block that you put them all into. Um, but yeah, so but yeah, the, the point is something is I like to say hinky, wonky, however you want to put it. Something's not right here when they're saying the bo- large butcher knife's missing and there's a picture of a large butcher knife still in that. How many large butcher knives did she have? You know, and, and where was the set that Juan looked at? It just it, and, and everything is just trying to lead the jury down the path of confirming Jennifer's confession that Catalina was killed with the large butcher knife that was taken out of that drawer, just like Jennifer said in her confession. And they managed to get through the ME's testimony without it coming out that she wasn't killed with a large butcher knife, which so far I haven't seen anybody, even people that think she's guilty, that disagree with that. I mean, you, you the evidence is indisputable as far as I'm concerned. She was killed with a much smaller knife. Uh, and then where it comes from, you know, is they, they dance around that, too, to try to make it seem like what Jennifer's saying has all come to fruition. I have a bigger question that I'd love to have the answer to that I don't know that we ever will is what the hell is the plastic for? Have you thought about that? Not really. Not until you just said that. But, you know, that's a good question. It's a big piece of plastic, which he calls plastic wrap, but it's not. It looks like Visqueen or something with like some paint speckles on it on top of the open silverware like why is it there you know and that, and it makes me wonder like is that something the killer brought with them you know were they gonna hold it over i i don't know i have no idea where that plastic came from and that's one of the things i'm excited to talk to jim about because jim is jim has a knack for looking at things that completely baffle me and going duh it came from this so we'll see Sarah says, not really a question, but I keep wondering if Jennifer thought she was in less trouble at the police station than when she got home. Obviously not saying her mother was bad or mean, but she had broken the dating rule and run away, both of which were against her mother's rules. This would point to Jennifer not understanding the gravity of the situation she was in. I definitely don't think she understood the gravity of the situation. I don't don't think there's any question about that, at least not in my mind. Whether she thought that she was more worried about being in trouble, I mean, in trouble at home, we've seen it. We saw it with Ed Eights. Ed Eights did twenty years in prison because he didn't want his mom to know that that he took his grandma's car. You know, so it, it definitely is is something that that happens. Uh, I I think the more I think Jennifer was at a real rebellious stage in her life where she was she was rebelling against authority. I I don't I mean I don't think that I don't think she cared if her mom was mad. Because she was, she was in this mode of like, I'm grown, I'm moving out, I'm going to live with Eva, I don't care if mom is mad. So I don't think that really 
plays in, at least not the way that, that, that I see it. And then with the police, she just, you know, I think she was scared. And then she, she figured out, as I said, you know, Schrodinger's cat, <laughs> she, she, uh, she just, she just tried to talk her way out of it as best she could, because I think, she, you know, I don't think she thought she was going to prison. I don't think there's any chance that when she signed that confession that she knew that meant she was going to prison. Well, I, I have to agree wholeheartedly. I, I think that's exactly it. I think that when she made the confession and included herself, which is what they got her with. Right. She thought that she was getting out of it by saying, hey, these two other guys did it. And exactly. I saw them do this. It's the same thing with like Brendan Dassey. He did the same exact thing, essentially. He right. included himself saying that Stephen Avery did it because that's what they wanted to hear. Right. But on accident, included himself, which now put him in trouble. And he didn't realize it. He thought he was going to go back to school. Right. And and Jennifer thought she was going to go home. Right. Yeah. They, they would. I, I think she felt like her way out of this was, okay, if I can point them in a direction and tell them who did it, even though I don't know who did it, but if I tell them who did it and sign this confession, then I'm done. I've helped them now. But yeah, it's the same thing happened to Jay Wilds with, with, in the Anand Syed case. The only difference was in order to get him to do it, I think that the prosecution made a deal with him to the point where he didn't get in trouble. Uh, in the way that he, you know, he, he got charged with accessory of God, a long time ago, remember, but it didn't do any jail time or very little, but it was the same thing. They push it. They, the, the police didn't have a case, so they needed a witness to help them make the case with Brendan Dassey, with Jay Wilds, with Jennifer Jeffley. Oh, with, uh, I mean, you could go on. Jesse Muskelly did the same thing. Yep. They, they put him in place and said, tell us that yep. they did this. And then he accidentally includes himself by saying he grabbed one of the boys. Well, now he's part of it. Yeah. I love how we're sitting there spitballing. We can think of a half a dozen scenarios where this happened, but then there's still folks out there that will be like, well, that's conspiracy theory. It's crazy talk. It literally happens every day. Joey says, I know you explained about the clever language that the prosecutor used with the ME regarding the knives, but for some reason, the knife chat with Alan seemed even more dishonest. She is clearly trying to convince the jury that the murder weapon was a butcher knife, like Jennifer's confession says. The verbiage that she uses also seems to indicate that she knew this was false. And Joey's got three points to make here. If so, does this rise to the level of misconduct? Should the judge have noticed these shenanigans and intervened? And could it be ineffective assistance that Jennifer's lawyer didn't pounce on this? No to the three questions. I don't think that I don't think she has any route to an appeal because the prosecutor didn't present any false evidence. She was very careful to word her questions in a way that no one gave false evidence so it's not you know it's not her fault if the jury took it a certain way but i think the greater point that that she makes here is that that it's very obvious from reading and i really hadn't thought about it until she said this that the prosecutor knew that catalina was not killed with a large butcher knife because if she had she would have worded the questions different she would have tried to drive that point home she would have said to the ME, do you think that a large butcher knife could have caused these injuries? But she didn't say that. She didn't say that at all. She 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 used the butcher knife term in the setup question, and then in the and then the follow up, she says, "And do you think that a knife was used in this in this murder?" And then the same thing with Detective Allen. You know, she says that in your twelve years of experience as a homicide detective, do you believe that a butcher knife could be used as a deadly weapon? In a case like this, and he says, yes, there's nothing inaccurate about that. Yes, a butcher knife could be used as a, as a deadly weapon. And then she says, and in your experience, 
do you believe that a knife was used as a deadly weapon? And he says, yes, both those two things are true. But the but the their hope is that the jury connects butcher knife to knife. Uh, she carefully danced around it. And the reason she carefully danced around it is because she knew that it wasn't a butcher knife. You know, she couldn't ask him because that becomes false testimony if she says, do you believe based on your experience and the evidence that a large butcher knife was used in this case? She didn't ask that because the answer is no. So so she intentionally dances around it while still getting her point across to the jury. I feel like that's tough because I feel like it is hard for the jury to to understand what they're going through. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's the moment the defense has to come in and say something. Right. Well, I don't think the defense the defense had a clue anyway. And on that note, uh, I, I do want to make a, a correction. Um, I, I I was pretty hard on on Coin, her defense attorney, and I still think he did a bad job. But one thing that I kept hitting on was the fact that he didn't read the statements even before the trial. Uh, and I was just made aware from one of our listeners, Des, who I believe is like a paralegal, uh, but works in Texas in the legal system. And evidently, at that time, for some reason, and, and I'm still trying to find the answer exactly how this plays out, but evidently at that time, witness statements were not considered Brady material. Uh, they, and the only way that a defense attorney would have access to witness statements prior to trial would be if the DA's office had an open uh, open records policy. I don't remember the name of it, but, but essentially meaning that the the defense could have access to all of their case material prior to the trial. In Houston, Harris County, uh, apparently, at least back then, was notorious for not having that policy where they didn't let the defense have access to those things. And the way the law was written, the way it was explained to me was that no witness statements had to be turned over to the defense until after that witness had testified. Uh, so... The fact that he didn't have the the witness statements prior to that testimony uh, looks like it probably was or could be because of the fact that he wasn't allowed to have them until that point. In my research in that, I'm still finding a bunch of different exceptions um, and reasons why it seems like it should have still been turned over, uh, but but I, I can't find anything definitive, and Des really seems to know you know, she knows her job and she knows the Texas legal system. So I do want to point out that I was I was I was hard on coin for that. And it seems like maybe that wasn't even his fault. That that's just the way it worked in Harris County back then, which brings up another point when it comes to how fair these trials are. Think about it gets awful. Think about how hamstrung a defense attorney would be going into a trial, a capital murder trial where the only evidence against your client is her own confession that was taken under under terrible circumstances in actually illegal circumstances because of the fact that he didn't notify her mother after she was in custody and you try to get that thrown out and the judge refuses to throw it out and then the only other part of the case against her is their star witness testimony who's going to say that that Jennifer asked her to lie and give all this other incriminating statements and you you have to go into the trial having no idea what this witness even said that is such an incredible disadvantage, and I, I don't know how any defense attorney can could could win a case under those, those circumstances. You know, if you're not dealing with a bunch of physical evidence, you're basically dealing with witness statements, and you're not allowed to see them before the trial. And then once Eva does testify, 
The only thing he's entitled to is the written statement. So he doesn't even get to see her other two statements that he could have used to impeach her. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Sarah says, we know that the read technique can lead to false confessions. What risk is there, if any, of the read technique creating false memories? I mean, I, th- I think that it can happen. I, I think over time, especially. It's certainly not the the purpose of it, but you know, anytime your your brains are just like we were just talking about with the knife, our brains have a tendency to to fill in gaps. When something is illogical, our brains try to try to connect the dots and make something logical out of it. It's just our our human nature, and so that's what that's probably what happened with the jury with the knives. What was said was, could a butcher knife be used as a deadly weapon? Yes. Do you think a knife was used as a deadly weapon in this case? Yes. And very quickly in the jurors' minds, they can when they remember back to that moment, they very likely remembered that moment, even though they lived it in real time, but they remember that moment as the detective saying that she was killed with a large butcher knife. And it and it creates this kind of false memory. I think that there's that that's something that could happen by using the read technique, but I Honestly, I, I I don't know. I'm going to retract that and say that I don't know uh, whether it could be because it's a completely different set of circumstances. In the read technique, the person that is that is uh, giving the confession, if there if it's a false confession, is completely making something up, and they know they're making something up. So I I think the only time that that maybe that becomes a concern is when police use the tactic of telling people that, well, maybe your brain just didn't remember this. Maybe it was so traumatic or maybe you were on so many drugs or maybe because you hit your head that you have a false memory and you blacked out. That, you, that That's um, uh, another preview coming up on True Crime Binge in two weeks. Uh, I have Amanda Knox coming on. I just interviewed her yesterday and we were talking about just this and her experience and going through that interrogation. So make sure you tune into that. But I'm just kind of drawing on that interview, how she was talking about how they did that to her. And tried to convince her that her brain just didn't record it, that that basically her memory's lying to her. I could see how that could give you a false memory. Tara says, does Detective Allen's use of the read technique on Jennifer at all lead you to believe he could have used the same technique on Eva to get her to implicate Jennifer? And before you answer that, Jason adds, do we know how long Eva was questioned? My understanding of the read technique is that it's an hours-long process. Eva and Jennifer are very different scenarios. First of all, Detective Allen never talked to, well, he did talk to Eva later, uh, but not till after she'd given a written statement. So he wasn't involved. It was Swainson that took her initial oral interview 
and then took her down and and had her give her written statement. And no, I don't think that the re-technique was used on her. I think when Swainson took her statement, he thought that she gen- that she really was just a witness. And the fact that she had told him on the scene that Jennifer had told her to lie, I think made him think even more so that this is a valuable witness and wanted her to just say what she knew, which then, again, takes so that when you look at the, the, the confirmable lies that we have with her, again, well, let's source information. You know, the lies that Jennifer told, where can they be sourced to? But then if you look at Eva, where are they sourced to? Nobody's, nobody is pushing her into anything. Now, later when she testifies at the grand jury and trial, yeah, she's got some influence. But early on, that all came from her. You know, the, the, the confirmed lies we have just came from her. She sourced it. So then she is the source, which means there's a reason for her to be lying. That's one of the reasons I, 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 I think that, that, she, that she definitely requires more investigation because she went out of her way to lie when there was no one influencing her to do so. And with Jennifer even, so if, if we're looking, so we're saying if, Jen, if Eva's innocent, why is she lying? You can't come up with a reason why she's lying. There's no outside influence as to why she's lying. Jennifer, on the other hand, if you look at her and say, okay, well, what if she in, is innocent? Why is she lying? You can source every single lie. She says that the reason she said that she saw Eva with the screaming is because Eva told her to because Eva is uh, Eva said that they were in danger. You might not believe that, but certainly if we're in a scenario where Jennifer's innocent, you can source that lie. You can find the utility in that lie and you can march that all the way through every one of her statements that there's outside influences pushing her into giving different stories, whether it's Eva telling her to lie about something. Or it's Detective Allen telling her that that everything she's saying is wrong and forcing her into creating a new narrative. So in Eva's case, the only source of her lies is herself. And no, it wasn't the re-technique, and no Detective Allen wasn't involved in that. Lawrence says I've had a really hard time with the detective since the beginning of this case. His methods have seemed questionable to me. Have you been able to do an interview or get a statement from him? No, Detective Allen's dead. He died in uh, 2019, so there's, there's no way, to get, obviously, to get an interview from him. Lynn says at trial, Coyne did a bulk objection to a large amount of testimony which received a single overruled statement from the judge. Did this strategy harm Jennifer's case? Is it common for public defenders to change during a case? Jennifer had one attorney arranging her to go with Allen on the drive to point out E and Slow's homes, yet we see Coyne in court. What do you think? Uh, regarding the first part with the bulk objection, no, that, that that didn't hurt her. As a matter of fact, that was that was smart on Coin's part. Essentially, the judge told him, "I'm going to overrule all this. I'm going to allow this testimony." So by by him putting in that that bulk objection to all of them, what he was doing was putting on the record that I did object to this. I told the judge and put on the record that I didn't think this should be allowed, and that I explained why, and he still allowed it. And that leaves an avenue of, for appeal later, because then, it does, it, you know, you could maybe try a, an ineffective assistance of counsel, but they can always argue strategy. But because he did that, you can now argue that an error was made by the judge, that she didn't receive a fair trial because he allowed this testimony in and it shouldn't have been in. And the original attorney did try to fight it and he still did it. So that was a smart thing that he did there. As far as the attorneys, I don't know how common it is. I think that. That origin when when Jennifer was first arrested, 
she was in, she's she's going to the juvenile detention center. She was assigned an attorney then to get her through the process of of entering her plea and all that stuff. Once she had entered a not guilty plea and it was going to trial, then she was assigned a trial attorney, and that was Coyne. I don't know how common that is, but that seems to be what happened here. Danny says, did Coyne or another attorney seek a plea deal for Jennifer? If not, why? I know it isn't justice, and I know it wouldn't have been fair, but she could have been out in a couple of years. I I don't think that any official plea bargain was ever set up. My understanding was that with Jennifer's first meeting with, and I don't know if this was Coyne or if it was with uh, her first attorney, uh, but my understanding was that the attorney's initial thought was that she confessed because she is guilty and he wanted to talk to her about doing a plea. And it was at that point when, uh, at some point in that process before the plea was entered, that Jennifer said, no, I'm not, I'm not pleading guilty. I'm innocent. And that was a false confession. Um, and, and so that, I don't think there was any like official plea bargain going back and forth with the prosecutor, but I, I my understanding is that that was where the her initial attorney, or I, it might even been Coyne, uh, wanted her to go was to try to plea this thing out, and and that's when Jennifer said, "No, I'm I'm going to trial because I'm innocent." Carla says, "Were there stomach contents mentioned in the autopsy? Could this help with a more definitive time of death?" There were stomach contents mentioned. It doesn't help with the time of death because we don't know when she ate. We don't know what time she got up. The only the only activity we know about her from that morning is that she called her nephew at 8 a.m., which she did every every morning at 8 a.m. But for all we know, she got up and had breakfast at 5 in the morning, or you know, she could have just gotten up. Maybe she was up late. We don't know when she ate, so stomach contents don't help us. There was, I think they said there's like 200 cc's of fluid in her stomach. I don't know if that was like partially digested food or just just fluid, but the big thing that we got from the stomach contents was that the ME did note that there were no pills or pill fragments in her stomach. And this last question also comes from Carla. Were Catalina's injuries immediately fatal or did she likely take time to bleed out? I believe we, we've had a lot of discussion about this with, with some medical professionals on the fan page. I, I think the consensus that we agreed to w- is that probably within 15 minutes she was she would she would have died personally i think it would have been faster than that i mean she had she had a severed aorta which which will which will cause bleeding out very very quickly she had a punctured lung which you can live a long time with one lung like hours before that will that will kill you but she had a punctured liver which will cause massive internal bleeding she also had a punctured pulmonary artery uh, and a stab wound that that punctured her heart itself so i think with any with the exception of the pulmonary artery and the aorta, most of those injuries would take time to die. But with the combination of all of them, I, in my opinion, she would have been dead within, within two minutes. That's my opinion. That's just based on my limited experience of anatomy and physiology just from being a first responder. There's nurses in, in the group that, you know, that, have, that have said that they think that it would be pretty quick, but they could say maybe 15 minutes. But there's definitely no some of the theories out there were that, well, maybe the attack occurred at five in the morning and it took her four hours to expire. Uh, that's just not possible. There's no you, you can't you can't have a hole in your aorta, a hole, a hole in your pulmonary artery, a stab through a lung, a stab through your liver and a stab in your heart and live for live for even an hour. There's just no way it's going to be it's going to be minutes, whether it's two minutes, 10 minutes or 15 minutes is up in the air. But it definitely would be rather quick. 
Well, if we know that she called her nephew at 8 a.m., I mean, that that puts it right there that it can't be that. I mean, it has to be less than an hour period. Right. Yeah, that's a really good. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's a really good point. She was on the phone with which we hadn't talked about that on the podcast other than me just mentioning it, but it's in the testimony. Uh, Yeah. So she's on the phone at eight and EMS is pronounced her dead at 915. Then it had to happen in that window. And that also then throws in um, the theories of Jennifer getting the page at 745 and killing her before that, because, again, she was on the phone with her nephew at eight in the morning. Um, which again, it was in the statements that I posted, but this is, I believe this is the first time that we, that, that I've, I've talked about that on the podcast cause I just caught it. Um, and I'm glad you caught it Zach, to, as far as how it falls in with the timeline. Um, so there you go. That's, that's your questions. Uh, this week's episode, we're going to continue on with the second half of detective Allen's testimony. I'm working on getting a guest to talk about the EMS protocols in Houston in 1996. Uh, we have a listener who. Uh, has an acquaintance that was working for Houston Fire and EMS at that time uh, to get some more information about the the time of death, you know, pr- pronunciation on those reports. Just uh, right now, I'm just trying to trying to convince him to come on and, and come on the air and, and ex- explain all that to us. So hopefully, that's coming up. Definitely coming up. Uh, part two of Detective Allen's testimony, and my hope is for next week we're going to have Jim Clemente. As I said, he has the case materials now. He's reviewing them and developing his profile. And we're hoping sometime in the next week to record that. So that would be the next week's episode. And for this week on True Crime Binge, I had Delia D'Ambra on. I, you heard from her during season nine uh, when she was talking about her podcast, Counterclock. Well, it's Counterclock season three for you and you're hearing this just dropped yesterday. And they did something a little interesting with for the first time. They released the entire season all at one time. Season three of Counterclock dropped yesterday. And Delia is on True Crime Binge talking all about it. That was Wednesday's episode, so you can check that out. Uh, And uh, as I said, we've got coming up soon on True Crime Binge also, Amanda Knox is going to be coming up. And with all that being said, it's time for me to get into writing this week's episode. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Zach. And thanks all of you for listening. We'll see you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.